Welcome to the first episode of the Instructional Booklet. I am your moon-hating host, as always, Jeremy Rich, and I am joined by the man who believes that the best uh, innovation in gaming uh, will be the KFC console, and that is uh, Michael Pons. What's going on, Michael? Yeah, it's it's going to change the face of the gaming industry. I firmly believe that. You know, I mean, having having chicken within reach yeah. is going to game changer. I can eat my food while playing Call of Duty. Absolutely. So, um, but uh, hey, we made an early access. That's good. Yeah. Um, you know, any uh, any any bugs or uh, problems aren't bugs anymore. They're now features as a part of the show. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but we just want to thank everybody for tuning in for that episode zero. That was uh, we had a, a nice big turnout of numbers. Well, we were really excited. Got some great feedback. So uh, hey, you know, thanks for listening in on it to hearing us ramble about Easter eggs for an hour. Mm. So it turns out people really like listening to us talk about Easter eggs. Yeah. Easter eggs are cool. Unfortunately, we won't be talking about Easter eggs this time. <laughs> uh, in fact, we will be doing the thing that we tell everybody we're going to be doing, which is, you know, as a show about video game history today, we're actually going to be talking about video game history. Uh, we're going to be kind of covering today uh, as like an overview, the beginning of what would become video games, talking about from like mm -hmm. the 1940s up to right up to the 1960s. Uh, we're going to kind of go over a few things here and there today, and uh, hopefully it'll be an enjoyable experience for everybody. Uh, so as we went over beforehand, uh, every even, odd number of episodes going to be like a history episode and even number of episodes will kind of be off kilter. That might change in the future. Who knows? We'll see. But uh, I guess the the best thing to talk about would be would lead off with, uh, well, what is a video game? And uh, so, Michael, I think you had something that you had uh, kind of wanted to read off about that. Yeah. Um, so something that I've been kind of looking into um, as I've been kind of researching video games and discussions about, you know, when video games really begin, it, it's a question that depends largely upon what your definition of video game is. Um, and it's it's perhaps a more difficult conversation than it might seem at first. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even if today, the things that we're going to be talking about today may even be, you know, proto-video games, so maybe we're doing a prehistory of video games. Um, but I have here with me 
um, an interesting book, The Video Game Theory Reader by Mark J.P. Wolf and Bernard Perrin. And in their introduction, they kind of offer an operative definition of video game, um, which I will just sort of present here. Um, and we can complicate it as necessary, um, but I'll just, I'll read off briefly uh, what they kind of offer. And they say that of all the various approaches that have been taken in defining the video game, a few elements seem to appear persistently under various names and descriptions. These elements are at the heart of what makes the video game a unique medium and need to be addressed in any discussion of them. The most fundamental of these elements are an algorithm, player activity, interface, and graphics. Um, kind of suggesting that in the absence of one of these four things, you don't really have a video game, right? Right. Uh, with, without an algorithm, you don't have um, an interactive system. Without player activity, you just don't have a player, and therefore it's not a game. Without interface, there's no way to interact with you know, the video game, and in that case, it's not a game. Uh, and without graphics, it's not a video game. Uh, yeah. It's just a game. Though graphics, of course... Um, the definition can be stretched, of course, when we're talking about something like a text-based game, right? Because then the, the graphics are just the text that's appearing on the screen. Yeah, and of course, like, what is it? Even with some of the stuff that we're going to be mentioning today, the theory of, behind of a graphic and a user interface is going to be a little a little muddy at times. Mm -hmm. yeah, but like, you know, with the, you know, the, 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 the other, like, the, the flip side of that, you know, definition being, you know, in the early days, it wasn't there wasn't so much as uh, entertainment as it more along the lines of it was like computer research and hmm. you know and the things that we're going to talk about today will kind of like like run right up to the things that we know but like you know like what you said with like prehistory these things are important yeah. and we need them uh, I guess it'll help us to provide context of how we're going to talk about games moving forward. Mm -hmm. It's also worth mentioning just briefly that. Um, one of the difficulties in talking about a history of something is that, um, I'll just say briefly, the process of creating a history is always one that we do from the present looking backwards, mm -hmm. right? Um, the game developers, even if they didn't consider themselves this from the 50s and the 60s, did not necessarily understand themselves as having a position in something that would turn into you know, a quote-unquote video game history. Uh, in fact, the term video game doesn't even really show up until the 70s, um, with a lot of people preferring, like, electronic game, computer game. Um, so it's worth keeping in mind that any sort of account of the history of the development of video games is something that, you know, people in the present and, and historians over the course of the 80s and 90s have had to reconstruct in sometimes um, difficult and confusing ways. Yeah, and of course, like, we have, like, kind of, like, even, like, when we were talking about with Easter eggs is this area that we're kind of talking about right now, we're still finding things. Mm -hmm. Is, you know, it's the whole lost to time idea, uh, especially with, you know, the how things degrade with technology and such. Right, things become obsolete so quickly. Oh yeah, that, you know it's it's near impossible to find a console from like you know the early seventies if it's something that didn't you know do well on the market. Yeah. Um. So you know it's funny because the oldest video game, um, or rather the first video game, keeps getting older and older. It seems as people continue to discover new things. Um, right. But you know that's what we're going to get into. Yeah. 
So I guess the uh, the first thing to kind of start off with is uh, the, I guess the invention of the thing that would kind of spawn all of it, and that was the mm. the cathode ray tube amusement device. Yes. Uh, was originally patented in January 25th, 1947 by Thomas T. Goldsmith Jr. and Estel Ray Mann. Um, it, um, it was an interesting because it was developed by a, uh, a television pioneer with, uh, with Goldsmith, and he was also a physicist at Furman University. Uh, I think you have the patent. Like if, I do, actually, yeah. Yeah, if you want to read um, that off. Yeah, this is excerpted from um, Mark J.P. Wolf's Before the Crash Early Video Game History, and I'll just read off um, the patent. <clears throat> this invention relates to a device with which a game can be played. The game is of such a character that it requires care and skill in playing it or operating the device with which the game is played. Skill can be increased with practice and the exercise of care contributes to success. In carrying out the invention, a cathode ray tube is used upon the face of which the trace of the ray or electron beam can be seen. One or more targets, such as pictures of airplanes, for example, are placed upon the face of the tube and controls are available to the player so that he can manipulate the trace or position of the beam, which is automatically caused to move across the face of the tube. This movement of the beam may be periodic and its repetition rate may be varied. Its path is preferably caused to depart from a straight line so as to require an increased amount of skill and care for success in playing the game. The game can be made more spectacular, and the interest therein both from the player's and the observer's standpoint can be increased by making a visible explosion of the cathode ray beam take place when the target is hit. United States patent number 2,455,992, <laughs> cathode ray tube amusement device, 1947. That's, that's such a long patent number. <laughs> it's funny. I practiced it a couple of times. Yeah, it was like... And it's just like, okay, um, yeah, all the other 2,455,991, they're mm. irrelevant at this point. Two million. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 55,000, yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's interesting how, like, that patent reads. Uh, it almost kind of reminds me of, like, I think, I, like, you know, um, it's almost, like, sounds like these weird little, like, funhouse games that you would see at, like, a carnival right. or something. and. I guess that makes sense with like how Goldsmith was a television person. And that's something that's kind of interesting about like early history with the video games is like, you can almost run it parallel to the development of the television as well as like parallel mm. to the development of computers. As like so much of this came out of like world war two. And I, we even talked about it when we were discussing our notes earlier is like, you could almost like, have an entire breakdown of like the development of computer technology and how world war two, like changed technology, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, even like it said, like, you know, it, it describes a game of skill, which a player sits or stands. Uh, and there's like a CRT video screen mounted cabinet. And it was designed to resemble like a world war two radar display. Right. So. It's a war game, you know, which is interesting. Yeah, I think a, a lot of these early games that we like, that we find are kind of like reminiscent of war things. Mm -hmm. um, even like the, the patent describes it, the players controlling the CRT electron gun, much like an Etch-A-Sketch, like a beam from the gun focuses, focuses on a single point on the screen to form a dot. 
and the players try to control the dot to hit like paper targets on the screen. It's kind of like yeah. how uh, in the NES days, like you had the light gun. Mm. It's it's a it's a it's a strange device. Like it's like eventually this is what would go on to form the ideas of what we know as like a CRT TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, uh, it's kind of neat that like, and it, it's weird as like I was researching this. You can find a lot of stuff about Goldsmith Jr., but like. Estel Ray man, like I, you can't really find a whole lot about that person. Like it's kind of odd, but I guess with Goldsmith Jr. being the more of the television pioneer and the physicist and having a lot of like experience at a university, you're probably going to find much more information about him than the other guy. Yeah. So, but um, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, I'll just say interestingly, right. So we, we should ask this question, of course. Why does the um, cathode ray tube amusement device, do, why doesn't this count as a video game? Or maybe should it, right? Yeah. Um, I guess moving from the operative definition that I kind of proposed earlier, that is, you know, Mark J.P. Wolf and Bernard Perrin's definition, um, it probably has to do with the graphics in this case. Yeah. Um, this is just, you know, purely on uh, a CRT. Um and it, it doesn't satisfy some of the criteria that um, Wolf and Perrin kind of explain are necessary for what what kind of graphics they're concerned. Um, they say that the graphics need to, let's see, uh, one would also expect the video game's graphics to differ from imagery in print or on film, and that they're on an electric electronic screen of some kind, a CRT, an LED, or an LCD screen, for example, yeah. and have some moving components under player control. That la- that latter element, the moving one, is the one that I was looking for, because a lot of these later kind of instances that we're going to go through, um, they're either qualified or disqualified as video games based on this this idea of moving graphics rather than just, you know, static fixed images. Yeah, and with this, what was it? Uh, you had airplanes and targets that were painted onto a transparency that was put on the screen. Yeah. Kind of reminds you of, like, uh, the old handheld, like, the Tiger electronic handhelds that were, like, they would have images painted on them and then the moving pieces would be behind it. Yeah. So it, It's interesting, though, about the, the ray tube amusement device. Due to the equipment costs and various other circumstances, it was never sold. There was only handmade prototypes were ever created. So that's, I wonder if I'm curious if any of those like still exist uh, out there. I'm definitely, you know, that would be interesting to see what one would look like now, like in compare it to like those things, like the old LCD screens or like the old game and watches, which are just like these little tiny things that that's, you know, got computer chips in them. And it kind of functions on the same premise of like, displaying something on a screen to which you interact with mm-hmm. so i'm sure they're tremendously expensive if if they still exist oh i'm sure so i guess that leads us into like the next big kind of leap so you know you have the ray tube which was created in 47 and from there you don't really have anything for a little while until you get to birdie the brain mm-hmm. uh, do you feel like talking about that one, Michael? Yeah, Birdie the Brain um, was an interesting thing. Let me pull it up. Um, so it's basically a computer. It was built by Joseph Cates. Um, 
for the Canadian National Exhibition in 1950. Basically, the idea of Birdie the Brain was you had a big computer um, that would allow players to play just a game of tic-tac-toe against an artificial intelligence. Oh, uh, no. And AI. Brain, <laughs> I, oh, no. <laughs> How topical, right? Yeah. Um, we should put Birdie the Brain up against ChatGPT and see who's better at at tic-tac-toe yeah my money's um, my money's on bard yeah um but basically you know it was just a big computer setup it had a big monitor and you just had um i'm pretty sure like a button grid just like you know like a, a nine point grid and you would just press you know the button that corresponded to the particular um section that you were trying to fill in on your turn on a tic-tac-toe screen um it was the the graphical display was just light bulbs basically um not really kind of any you know digital display or, or anything like that so um birdie the brain i'm pretty sure one of the things that disqualifies it as i was saying before for many people as being a contender for the first video game is this criteria of um moving graphics or something on like a digital display mm -hmm. Though, of course, that's not a universally accepted um, thing, right? Some people who don't necessarily observe that strict uh, of a definition of what a graphical display is may, in fact, consider Birdie the Brain to be something like the first video game. Right. Um, and I'll let you say more about that. Yeah, and it's weird because, like, you know, computers back then aren't like what we think of today. They're not this little box that sits next to us. It's it took up a whole room, you know, they were massive. The, the computing power we have today pales in comparison to like what the, the original computers were. Cause like, they were just like, was what's the joke that there's more power in your phone than there was in like the Apollo lander. Yeah. So, you know, uh, with, with Kate's, he previously worked and designed building radars in world war two. Uh, then, after the war, he pursued he's pursued graduate studies in Computing Center with Toronto. He helped build the University of Toronto's electronic computer, which they even have articles on their site talking about Birdie the Brain, you know, and talking about like the first working computer in the world. And then it's you know during this national expo, you would just have people walk up and push buttons and try and compete against this computer that always tried to win. It would always like play for either like the tie. So it was, it was weird to like, I, I think I've, I've seen the pictures of what it looked like. And it's like what you said, it's like, it's just a big button and you just, yeah. So, but you know, it's like you said, like it's a contender, but unfortunately, you know, people discredit it because of the visual display, which right. it's where we kind of get into this, like sort of weirdness where it's like, sure. Birdie the brain was a computer that ran tic-tac-toe that is, a game that people know of but like the people who created it didn't do it for the intended purposes of like i'm gonna make this video game and sell millions of copies of it it was more on the lines of i'm gonna make this thing to show how computers work right and to demonstrate how cool my ai is rather yeah. than you know to make a a tic-tac-toe machine mm -hmm. um so there's a question of intent, right? Does that disqualify, you know, if, if they weren't trying to make the first video game, does it count as the first video game? Yeah, was, was, was Kate's actual intention, you know, video game related, or was it more computer science progressing forward? Mm -hmm. And, you know, with, with this conversation, I will say, 
and this is something that I kind of mentioned when we were talking about our notes, but it is a question of definition at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is no pre-existing fl- free-floating I- like platonic ideal of the video game. Um, you know, I-, I would go as far as to say that video games are uh, those things that people would recognize as being a video game, um, if, you- if you'll entertain something of a pretentious definition. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, whether or not Birdie the Brain counts as a video game is eh, eh, it's like whatever right Um, yeah i think it's an interesting thing even as a proto video game um it's really just a question of how wide does our definition get before it starts to create problems as far as like well if birdie the brain is a video game then perhaps all of these other things are video games um you know like uh what is it i don't know games on a, a calculator right do those turn into video games maybe maybe not um but it's it's food for thought and you know just because i'm quoting um mark wolf and bernard perrin a lot doesn't necessarily mean that they're the end-all be-all authorities on what gets to count as a video game so right and that's the kind of the i guess it's kind of the wonder and like the excitement of like this 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 period of like the beginning would be like what is and what isn't like you know, and even like you think about like how today we we've reached the point of like like how walking simulators or right. games like that that don't have a whole lot of interaction into them, and it's more along the lines of you're just sitting there watching events play out. Like, mm-hmm. is that still technically a video game? You you play it on like a console, you play it mm-hmm. here, but like you're not interacting. You're just kind of experiencing. I mean, what what differentiates that from a movie, say? Right. I, I've heard theorists who would make that argument that actually, you know, things like um, Dear Esther or Gone Home don't count as video games anymore, right? Because they cease to be games because they're uh, more like time-based linear narratives uh, than anything that we would recognize as sharing relations to chess, let's say. Yeah, and that, that's um, interesting. Like, it's interesting it on, is. like, both ends of, like, the dichotomy of this. Like, here in the beginning, we have people going, well, that's not a game. It doesn't have a display. And then on this end of it, we've got, well, that's not a game. You're not doing anything. Right. Um, I mean, you know, interesting conversation. Maybe we can go into that in a future episode as far as, like, yeah. walking simulators are concerned. Yeah. So I guess that leads us to our next one, which would be Nemeride. Not not to be confused with the murderous robot from the X-Men. Yes. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> so it was uh, originally created in May 5th, 1951 by the Ferranti, uh, is that correct? Yeah. International PLC, which was a UK electrical engineer and equipment firm. Uh, it was an early computer built to play a game called NIM, inspired by Nim- Nimrod. Uh, Nimrod? allowed exhibition attendees to play against a game of NIM against another AI. So there we go again, more AI. Uh, NIM is a mathematical game of strategy which two players take turns removing objects from a distinct pool on each turn. Players must remove at least one object and may remove any number of objects provided they all come from the same pool. Um, it kind of falls into the same problem. It, it classifies as one of the first video games. Uh, as one of the first computer games to have any sort of visual display 
mm-hmm. appears four four years after the CRT amusement device, but it also uses light bulbs rather than a screen. So, yeah. kind of the same boat there, you know. Um, Wired actually has an article on Nimrod that's pretty good, um, titled "Nimrod: The World's First Gaming Computer," um, which perhaps you know uh, demonstrates the author's opinion on where Nimrod perhaps uh, exists or stands within the history of video games, right? Because if it's a gaming computer, then it would perhaps qualify as a game. Or, you know, a game doesn't necessarily have to be a video game, so maybe not. But yeah, um, as with um, Birdie the Brain, something that's interesting about Nimrod is that, you know, the the inventors of, of Nimrod were again less concerned with the game being played right it, it, it wasn't really an endeavor in making um a machine that people could use to play nim so much as it was a demonstration of the mathematical capabilities of the machine that nim was being run on right um but yeah like well the the two people who worked on this you know, it was more like a the company. It was they were more pushed by the company versus how like with Birdie the Brain, it was someone making the decision at a university. This was more like a company going, "Hey, we can build these machines." And you know, mm-hmm. it's interesting because we have like uh, with Birdie the Brain, it was more Canadian, and this is more UK. It's interesting to me that all of this stuff is happening like outside of like the US. Um, yeah, that is interesting. Versus, like, ten people tend to think about like, you know, video games originating like here in Japan, versus like yeah. with Canada and the UK, and this is where these machines were originally created from. So, and then how it's it's all of these like exhibitions where people just like walk up and you know fiddle around with a piece of machinery to show like what's happening. Um. I guess it would be interesting to mention during all this uh, this time we could talk about like the other the other big thing that we, I I had, had taken out of the notes, but then we talked about it and how it's like worth mentioning was a, a Turo Champ. Mm, yeah. So if you want to talk about a little bit of that, uh, you you know more about that one actually. I'll okay. let you take that one. So this one this was a computer a chess program developed in ni- in nineteen forty eight. Uh, by actual Alan Turing, uh, though it was never like wildly circulated until like later. So it's interesting that it was a it was a computer game instead of like it was a program instead of like something where you have like Birdie the Brain or like Nimrod, where it's like this is a machine that runs a particular thing. Mm-hmm. So I guess that falls into the category of like I originally had it in our notes, but then I had taken it out because I was like. Well, is is this really classified as a video game? Because it's more like a program that's running, you know, the algorithm. So I took it out originally, but then when we were talking yesterday about our notes, I was just like, you know, it might be worth looking into because it's, it is still a, it's a version of a game being put on a computer. Right. But does that make it a video game? Computer game too was like the much more frequent term, I think, Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of these things in in the 50s and the 60s. You tend to see computer game and electronic game uh, utilized much more frequently um, because, again, the term video game doesn't even show up until 
according to Nolan Bushnell, who we'll get to a little bit later, he thinks that the term video game shows up in 71. Yeah, I think, um, I think we get into our, the, the, the thing we were talking about yesterday is uh, our good friends, you know, Atari and how mm. there's a lot of uh, monopolization, but, you know, which we'll get to. It's kind of yeah. like how you were talking about, like the definition of history and defining things like people are going to pick and choose what they want. So, mm-hmm. like, do we leave this, you know, computer program on the floor saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, Alan Turing, the guy who helped make computers, he made a computer program that solves chess for two. But, but yeah. this program thing um, over here called Nimrod just uses lights. <laughs> yeah. So, right. That's the question. Um, does Nim on the Nimrod count as a video game? Um if it does, then I think Birdie the Brain counts as a video game because the same <clears throat> problem with Nimrod is that it uses light bulbs rather than a screen with real-time visual graphics, um, mm-hmm. and you know, especially not moving graphics. And so, um, I think you know, depending on what criteria we use in our definition of what a video game is, if Birdie the Brain doesn't count, then Nim on Nimrod certainly doesn't count either. Right. Um, which leads us to OXO, mm-hmm. um, which is a, something that came out in 52. It was developed by A.S. Douglas, um, and it was basically another tic-tac-toe game, uh, so as far as I'm aware. Um, this time, you know, with uh, visuals on an electronic screen, um, though it doesn't have moving graphics still. Um, which is something that, again, a lot of people find, you know, a, a sufficient criteria for excluding it from this history. Yeah, and it, it also had the same thing of you're playing against an AI opponent yeah. versus, like, playing against another player. And, uh, you know, and it, it was programmed as a part of a thesis on human-computer interaction. You know, and you can actually find that thesis on the University of Cambridge's website. So, you know, A.S. Douglas... Again, somebody who not creating something for the intensive purposes of entertainment, instead it's making something for the advancement of computer science. Right. I think I think to that question of entertainment too, you know, a thought that I just had actually off the top of my head is um, certainly it would be easier to program any of these games as a multiplayer game, right? Mm-hmm. Like if Birdie the Brain had simply just been a two-player tic-tac-toe machine, you know, where each player took turns pressing buttons and lighting up their respective positions on the overhead screen. Um, I mean, that would certainly be an entertainment device rather than anything else, you know, demonstrating software or hardware. Um, So I think it's telling that all of these examples that we've been going through have been player versus AI, right? Right. Um, that really kind of demonstrates that, you know, where, where the intention is, that it's it's about demonstrating um, how advanced computers had gotten at that point, rather than just simply, you know, oh, play tic-tac-toe on a, on a very, very expensive and complex tic-tac-toe machine. Makes me wonder if anybody actually ever beat these computers, because they were specifically engineered to either, like, win as fast as possible or if they couldn't win go for a draw and it's like yeah that's not fair this is tic-tac-toe <laughs> it's yeah it- i mean 
a, a lot of these things too the, the sample size in terms of who actually got to play against them is very limited of course i know oxo um, was only really available um, at the university of cambridge cambridge's mathematical laboratory and like it's not like they were inviting t- world tic-tac-toe champions if that's even a thing i don't know <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm, I bet yeah i'm woefully ignorant of the professional tic-tac-toe circuit but yeah, if any, um, anybody out there is a, an expert tic-tac-toe player uh please let us know uh we have a, an email address that you can send to like instruction booklet at gmail.com like, yeah yeah, yeah. We, we'd love to hear your feedback um what's really hilarious about x uh, oxo is uh i like the fact that the players entered their inputs using a rotary telephone controller mm. Instead of having like a grid, you actually just punch stuff in. Yeah. It's like, well, I, I partly wonder if like AS Douglas was sitting around trying to come up with like an interface and saw the phone and was like, eh, people already know how to use this. So let's do this. Yeah. I mean, like you said, as far as um, this, this history being um, aligned in some way with the development of televisions and computers, a lot of it is these inventors figuring out how much how much of other people's work they can steal and i right. don't mean that in a bad way but like taking advantage of existing technology um in order to you know use it for creative new purposes that that haven't yet been explored yeah um, is very much what this history looks like so i guess this leads us into our first like our next big leap and the one that kind of comes up a lot, which would be uh, Tennis for Two, which was October 18th, uh, 1958, by William Higginbotham, who was also a physicist and a member of the team that developed the first nuclear bomb. Uh, Tennis for Two was on an oscilloscope, which was an electronic display, and the game took Higginbotham a few weeks to complete and was a popular attraction at the show that it was originally displayed at. And it was such a hit that Higginbotham created an expanded version in 59. Um, This was also at a Brookhaven National Laboratory where he worked until his retirement. Uh, And in 85, as the head of the instrumental division, he created Tennis for Two. uh, He originally created the Tennis for Two in the Labs Expo. And this is the one where kind of people start really talking about like video games. If you look up a lot of like video game stuff, this is kind of what you see. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you agree? If, if you ask ChatGPT what the first video game is, it actually tells you Tennis for Two. I tested this. Oh wow! Um, and worth mentioning, Nolan Bushnell, who again we're going to get to a little bit later when we talk about Atari. Um, Nolan Bushnell in an interview um, with. Benji Edwards uh, for the Vintage Computing and Gaming uh, website. Um, Bushnell actually claims that Willie Higginbotham's Tennis for Two is the first video game. Okay, um, which is interesting. It, it's if have you seen, have you ever seen any of the pictures of what how the display looked on this thing? Yeah, it looks interesting. Um, looks like a radar, you know. Yeah. But like for folks who don't know what like an oscilloscope looks like, it's uh it's kind of like a big circular uh image with like kind of gridded lines. Uh, essentially, you could use an oscilloscope for displaying all kinds of stuff. Like mostly, yeah, it's kind of like radars. But and how Tennis for Two was displayed, they just had a green line with a, gr- a line in the middle, and you had a little ball, and you would kind of like bounce ball back and forth. 
almost kind of like another popular game that we will get to at some point. Mm. And, you know, like I was talking about earlier in terms of having a, a, a multiplayer thing purely for the purpose of entertainment rather than just demonstrating technological advancement. Um, you know, this game was designed from the ground up to be played by two people, right? Tennis for two. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps that's that's something to take into consideration as far as is this a more viable candidate for something like the first video game insofar as it's really intended? Like, the game is the point of the invention. Yeah. And um, was it, it was it was displayed for three days during the exhibit, and people were just lining up to see it. Like, yeah. apparently even, like, high school students, which, you know, these are kind of the things that kind of spark, like, I think you would figure it would spark the imagination of people watching this happening, going, oh, well, if we can monetize this, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting to think about how, and, and then, like, even with interviews with Higginbottom, he's like, I don't want to be known as the guy who created the video game. <laughs> like... He wants he he would much rather be remembered for all the other stuff that he's done, right? Which is funny. Yeah, but this man who worked on the atomic bomb also decided to make this other thing. So, um, so then I guess it leads us to our our next one on the line. Uh, did you want to talk about that one? Yeah. Um. So this is space war from 1962, which was developed by um, Steve Russell in collaboration with Martin Greitz, um, Wayne Wittanen and Bob Saunders, Steve Piner and others at the Massachusetts Institution of Technology, Institute of Technology, sorry. Space War is interesting because here is a moment where we kind of finally arrive at something that people almost unilaterally accept to be a video game. Um, in fact, many of the you know historical and theoretical texts that I've been looking into recently um, have no qualms stating that Space War is the first video game. Um, going back to that Mark J.P. Wolf and, and Bernard Perrin book that I was quoting from earlier, they actually write in this section on a brief history of the study of video games that, uh, quote, a number of histories have already given accounts of what is commonly considered to be the first real video game. Uh, which is Space War from 1962. Um, And so actually I've read a couple of theoretical texts that jokingly refer to this kind of paternal dispute between uh, Higginbotham's Tennis for Two and Space War. Um, Yeah, that's usually where the line is drawn, is between these two games. Right. These are the two most frequently um, contentious. Um, What is it? There's another book that I have... um, Supercade by Van Burnham that actually starts with Tennis for Two, but interestingly refers to it as a electronic computer game rather than video game. Um, so perhaps there's a little bit of, you know, political word choice happening there. Again, it comes down to um, the nuances of, of what particularly is happening in terms of the technology. Yeah. Um, but, you know, because I haven't explained actually what the game looks like yet, basically Space War is a multiplayer combat game. So it's another kind of war game where two players control spaceships on a computer screen and they're orbiting a star. And basically the point of the game is to um, just blow up the other person's ship. So you're in this like space dogfight. Uh, the graphics are very simple, but 
um, and you can actually play it online uh, if you if you go on Google. I'm not sure what the website is called, but if you just look up Space War, and it's uh, Space War with an exclamation mark at the end. Right. So it's very exciting. It's Space War. Um, something to really like get the kids involved. Yeah. You can find playable versions of it online, um, though perhaps not uh, identical to the original because there have been patches and there have been updates. Um, <laughs> I just so. I just picture like Russell and them not even thinking about it like in the past and just like, oh, this is fine. We're good. And then people playing it later going, man, this uh, this hyperspace jump mechanic that we've got in this game is pretty broken. We should we should patch that. Right. Yeah. Um, Space War is still getting support. Um, yeah. You know, compared to, you know, more recent games that came out within the last two years that have already been <laughs> Rip Rumbleverse. Yeah. Uh, Rip Rumbleverse. Um, but, but, but Space War is also a very important game in this history, um, which we can now say firmly we're in the early history of video games. Um, because Space War has influence. Space War has a legacy. Um, in fact, the first handful of video games that would come out after Space War that are kind of frequently mentioned in the history of video games um, are directly influenced by it. Um, and then, you know, this is this is where we're kind of pushing up against the end of the 60s and into the 1970s, um, which I think we'll, we'll cover, you know, the 70s and the 80s in more detail at a later point. But um, directly influenced by Space War were... Um, Ralph Baer, who worked on the Magnavox Odyssey, um, you know, the original game console, which we'll get into. Um, and then Nolan Bushnell, who was one of the original founders of a company called Syzygy, um, which made computer space, which was, um, I think, widely considered the first arcade cabinet, um, you know, for video games that started showing up in arcades rather than in homes. Um, and computer space was you know, almost a shameless ripoff of Space War. Right. Um, but, you know, it was a mass-produced, you know, version of Space War that can actually be played by the public. Um, and interestingly enough, Nolan Bushnell, who I've mentioned a couple of times now, um, his company, Syzygy, when they later found out that the name had already been taken, uh, they later rebranded to Atari. Um, tons of people know because yeah. they're still around today. Yep. Um, so Atari was kind of right there at the beginning, uh, as far as early video games are concerned, the video game industry, right? Because video games show up first and then the video game industry forms later, right? Once this becomes a financially viable pursuit. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, um, so like in the lead up, to all the notes that we were working on for this episode, I actually like asked a few people that I know and just like proposed some questions to kind of like figure out like someone that's not really digging into the history. Like how would, what would they think of as the first video game? And so without telling them the names, a sticking point that kind of came back to me a lot was the idea of accessibility. So mm -hmm. like, you know, with birdie, the brain and Nimrod and OXO, those were, computers that were run at trade shows or scientific fairs or expos. Then when you get into like tennis for two and space war, these were games that were put in like labs that were only accessible to like a few people. And 
I would constantly, people would talk about that. Like, oh, well, if, you know, if it wasn't available to the public, is it really a video game? And, but then you come to like computer space, which was just mm-hmm. like released to the public. And so it's almost, it turns into this like sort of like three way competition between these, these three titles essentially. And each one, you know, as we all, as we were discussing earlier, like, you know, the earlier things that we talked about, they were just like light bulb displays as to where like, yeah, tennis for two was on a oscilloscope, which is an actual like electronic displays. Space war was also like on a computer screen and computer space is the same thing. So like, where do you kind of like draw the line and the difference? It, it, it provides like really interesting, just like thought, like in thinking about like this definition as we come up to what is you know, where we're firmly about to be like when we start talking about like the Odyssey and Atari, you know, at mm-hmm. this point you're kind of firmly in the seat of this is video games. So, yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, it's interesting too that arcade games and console games really do kind of show up at the same moment. I mean, like the Magnavox Odyssey and um, computer space are only like one year apart from each other, which is, you know, I think a lot of people have this conception that games really like started in arcades and then moved into the home. Um, but really these things were kind of being developed at the same time. Right. And as mentioned earlier, I'll just say briefly, um, because I've been hinting at it and, and alluding to it the whole time. Um, when Nolan Bushnell made this claim that the term video game first shows up in 1971, he actually believes that it was a reporter talking about space war. Um, so it's not even a term that he himself coined, right? It, the, the term video game was not on the minds of anyone at this time who was working on these things. You know, Nolan Bushnell wasn't thinking I'm making a video game when he was making computer space. Yeah. Um, this is a thing that, you know, reporters later came to to deploy this term. I think the Oxford English Dictionary even um, claims that the term showed up in um, 73 from a um, Business Week article, um, the first printed use of the term, uh, though I think Bushnell uh, disputes this somewhat. Uh, I think uh, there's a quote from uh, Steve Russell, the guy who worked on Space War uh, from like 72, that said... Uh, Somebody had built some little patent generating programs which made interesting patterns like a kaleidoscope. Not a very good demonstration. Here was this display that could do all sorts of good things. So we started talking about it, figuring out what would be interesting displays. We decided that probably we could make a two-dimensional maneuvering sort of thing and decided, decided that naturally the obvious thing to do was spaceships. So, you know, like, there's kind of like a, you know, like you're talking about, like this intent of... They didn't think, oh, we're making this video game. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, hey, we've, we created this really cool like device that displays colors and has interactivity. Like, what should we do with it? Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I will say, I'll, I'll throw a wrench in, into this, uh, another level of complication, perhaps. Um, coming from a sort of literary studies background that I do, Maybe this applies, maybe this doesn't to this conversation, but we like to have conversations about authorial intent. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea, maybe you've heard it quoted, the death of the author, um, kind of refers to this idea that 
these things, right, texts as cultural objects, um, they kind of exceed the author's intent when they become public things, right? Once readers get their hands on a text, um, it's less clear whether or not the author's original intention is the ultimate, you know, end-all, be-all authority of what the text is or what it means or what it's saying. And so I think in an interesting way, you know, we've kind of had this, we, we've, we've talked about how does it disqualify something from being a video game if, for instance, Birdie the Brain and Nimrod, you know, were designed not with the intention of, of being gaming machines or gaming devices, but if they were just to do something else, right? If the game was instrumental um, towards another end, towards another purpose, does it matter, right? I mean, can we as outsiders, can we as the people who didn't invent these machines still retroactively say, no, it doesn't actually matter, um, you know, what Ferranti was thinking when they made Nimrod. Um, it is still a video game. Yeah, it it kind of reminds me of like uh, when I was doing a lot of film studies in college, we talked about like, you know, movies were created because of a bet uh, mm. involving like it was uh, I can't remember the 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 people involved, but it was basically, you know, the idea that. One person bet that another person, you know, that when a horse runs, that all four legs at one point were in the air. Mm. So, so someone created a device essentially to record a horse running. And in fact, you know, all four legs are in the air at one point. So it's kind of like at the time they weren't thinking I'm making movies. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, it was more on the lines of, this dude said, I can't prove this, so I'm going to do this. Yeah. And, and in this case, it's these these physicists and these like pioneers and stuff like that, and these these computer scientist people coming out of World War II going, Oh, look at this like technology we have access to. But like, what can we do with it? Like we need to be able to display and show off to show how these things work. And you get stuff like Birdie the Brain and Nimrod and OXO, which mm-hmm. get leads us into Tennis for Two, where, you know, a guy who worked on the atomic bomb said, I can take this oscilloscope and I can make a game where two people were playing tennis. Yep. To, you know, Russell and Bushnell, you know, looking at this kind of stuff going, what if we make the stuff and... You know, we can kind of make it more, you know, a little more entertaining, but we're still kind of testing the limits of computers as to where, you know, Bushnell actually just going, no, what if we just do it for entertainment purposes? Mm -hmm. Which there there may be somebody else involved there. Sure. It's interesting that you mention um, film um, because actually there's another article that I really like. Um, It's not an article, it's an essay, but um, Carl Therian has this really good essay called Video Games Caught Up in History. Um, which is something that theoretically I was drawing from a little bit earlier when I was talking about the tendency for us um, to kind of project contemporary historical concerns onto the past when we're trying to construct narratives about the history of a particular medium. Um, He actually starts this essay by talking about the sort of methodological problems encountered by early cinema historians. 
um, which is to say that a lot of early historians of the history of cinema are similarly guilty of overlooking a lot of things that we might recognize as being film right um because it didn't fit their particular criteria of what was important um you know like a lot of early cinema historians were interested in narrative figures in moving picture um, and that's like not something that is frequently shown in film before like 1906 is what the article says mm-hmm. um and so that kind of that kind of results in this weird gap blind spot where there's just like a lot of things that seemingly should be a part of this history that aren't um and that's kind of the same thing that you know you see in a lot of historical accounts of video game history like you know this book that i have right here the the before the crash early video game history from mark jp wolf um i am almost certain that there's no mention of birdie the brain um which is very interesting because this is the book that i was reading the the patent from for the uh, cathode ray tube amusement device i mean it's almost like we're jumping straight from 47 um up to let's see space war yeah he doesn't even mention tennis for two Wow, which you know that's that's forty seven to what's what's space war you know sixty two sixty two like, yeah you're almost missing like twenty years there yeah it's a fifteen year jump yeah I, but it it completely glosses over these things that you know at, at least as we've made the case belong in the conversation even if we ultimately decide that they aren't what we recognize as being a video game from a contemporary perspective right I think without without these things that we've mentioned without you know the the birdie of the brains the the nimrod the oxo the even the turo champ i think you don't get to tennis for two in space war mm-hmm. so someone had to make these steps to prove that you could do these things before someone looked at it and said hey i can make money doing this mm-hmm. you know and that's kind of the idea of like you know where we're going from here, things are going to be a lot more clear. Granted, it might take us a little while to move through the seventies and eighties because there's some stuff that happens. Like, yep. <clears throat> I, I feel like from like World War Two to where we're we're at right now, it's like big leaps. But you also have to understand that, like with computers, this was like a new thing. People were still learning and figuring out how to make it do everything that we, you know. Mm-hmm. think about now where i have a computer where you know we're recording a podcast i can search the internet versus this guy made a computer that you push a button and it plays tic-tac-toe yeah a lot a lot of the developments in terms of the video game industry too um have <clears throat> have to be taken within the larger context of like the home electronics market mm-hmm. you know um chipsets calculators home computers um there's a lot of moments in the the 70s and the 80s that um particular shifts and developments in the video game industry are a direct result not of anything that's happened in the video game industry but because somebody has developed you know a, a particular type of computer chip that makes it more cost effective uh, to mass produce so we'll get into that yeah so, um yeah. I, I think uh, an interesting conversation to kind of 
you know, maybe um, shift into a, towards the end here is that per the operative definition of video game that I that I offered earlier, um, and and per these considerations that we've made as to whether or not Birdie the Brain or Nim on Nimrod count as as video games is you know like this moving graphics one is a big one that a lot of people seem to stick to Mm -hmm. and i mean i can think of more recent games that don't have moving graphics per se right yeah like does a text-based adventure have moving graphics if we grant that it has graphics as i kind of said earlier that maybe text counts as a kind of graphical um, representation i'm willing to suggest that but you know does um colossal cave adventure have moving graphics probably not it's mostly a text-based game isn't it right unless unless we suggest that the text rolling out on the screen in front of you counts as a moving graphic or the text sliding up the screen um you know as you enter new uh inputs does that count as a moving graphic? Right. And, and that's because it, it, it's just interesting. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be in the business of gatekeeping too hard what, what gets to count. Because again, per my somewhat pretentious definition that I gave earlier, if people recognize text-based adventures as being video games, then I, I'm totally fine saying that they're video games. Right. Um, you know, if walking simulators are recognized as video games, you know, if, if games like Gone Home can win awards, you know, at like the video game awards, um, or like Disco Elysium, for instance, which won Game of the Year, if people are fine considering these things video games, then I have no problem calling them video games. Yeah. Um, but, you know, these are interesting nuances to perhaps be attentive to as far as you know, I guess trying to, to, to formulate a more rigorous definition. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I agree. I think like by saying those things, like even we were saying, like with, with Turo champ, you could maybe like look at it and go, I mean, it's playing a game. Yep. You're not playing against somebody. You're playing against an AI, but you are playing something that has graphics. Mm-hmm. This, this hang up on the graphics part is it, it's very interesting. Like I, I agree. Like, like, what do you define as like a graphic? And then, like, that's well, that we're like, that's going real deep at that point. <laughs> so, yeah. If I if I play chess on a computer, does that count as a video game? Right? I mean, it is a game on a computer. You you um, can play chess without there ever actually being a physical board because you can just like rattle off where like pieces are on a board. Right. So, if I, I, I mean, like. If I pull up a Microsoft Word document, you know, or or like a, a presentation maker of some kind, uh, and let's say me and my friend are just sitting at a computer and we're playing tic-tac-toe, you know, via Microsoft Word, right? Does that count as a video game? Yeah. I think it's uh, it's interesting to think about. Maybe. I mean, like, that to me stretches the definition insofar as, again, per, per what I maybe should just call like a sniff test. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I, I think ninety percent of people would look at that and say, no, of course that's not a video game. Um 
despite the fact that it is a game being played on a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, right? If 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 tic tac toe being played via Microsoft Word is not a video game, then can Birdie the Brain be a video game? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting stuff. I think it's this this has been a, a fun little journey through like the pre era up to where we're at now. Yeah. So, all right. I um, think that about wraps us up. Um. So for next time, for next episode, we won't be doing another history episode. I know you're sad. You want to know about the Magnavox Odyssey and Atari, which we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. I think me and you both are equally equally kind of excited to get into this odyssey atari situation yeah so. if, if you want to learn about magnavox suing basically the entire game industry then stick around for our next history episode yeah but for, that, that was crazy but for next month episode two we're gonna be taking a little bit of a break because we gotta spend some time researching the 70s uh and we're gonna be talking about a game both uh me and michael are kind of a franchise we both like uh street fighter Mm-hmm. because Street Fighter 6 is right around the horn- corner, so we're going to be doing a, kind of like a retrospective, talking about Street Fighter from the beginnings to where we're at now. And that'll be episode two, which will come out in June. And then in July, we will have episode three, which will be about the 70s. So if you don't really want to hear about Street Fighter, that's eh, fine. If you, if, uh, if you want to listen to more history stuff, just wait another month or so. It'll be there. So... Uh, but I guess as, as we're closing, I guess to kind of just, you know, have just a general uh, quick recap. Uh, Michael, what games have been playing lately? I have been revisiting a bunch of um, what for me, I guess, at this point are older games. I say older, um, but I've been I've been really trying to get back into RPGs and interactive sims. And so I've got this list of games that I'm just kind of trying to knock out as far as you know, if, if you go on the internet, you go on Reddit, you go on any internet forum, <clears throat> and you ask an RPG fan like what their top ten video games of all time are, you know, you're gonna see things like Deus Ex, Vampire: The Masquerade, Bloodlines, Planescape Torment. Um, that's what I'm playing right now. So I just finished the original Deus Ex, um, and I just finished a day or two ago um, Vampire: The Masquerade, Bloodlines. I'm considering replaying it again because I'm really enjoyed it. Um, but I have other games to move on to. System Shock 2, mm-hmm. uh, Planescape Torment, Pathologic, that kind of stuff. Sweet. Um, what about you? Uh, I'm still on Cyberpunk. <laughs> oh, yeah. I finally, uh, I did all the gigs, and I did all of the side quests, and I'm finally starting the main quest line. Uh, oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I've been playing uh, Breath of the Wild in preparation for Tears of the Kingdom. Tears of the Kingdom, yeah. And uh, I've been poking around on the Street Fighter Six demo, so... Yeah, I haven't given that a try yet. Um, I suppose I should in advance of our next episode, but yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm being told Marissa is not playable in the demo. So <laughs> who knows? Uh, we'll, we might stream us playing like old Street Fighter games just to kind of yeah. like see. So but, uh, some, some third strike. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, so I guess we'll just do our plugs and then we'll wrap it up. So uh, Michael, where can the people find you? Um, people can find me on Twitter and instagram okay. uh, i believe in both locations i am mackerel prawns uh, which is meant to sound like the the fish and the uh the crustacean okay. uh, it's mackerel underscore prawns on instagram and then just at mackerel prawns on twitter okay 
Um, and y'all can find me on, uh, I'm on twitch.tv slash backwards hero. I'm also on Instagram as press art F four, as well as Facebook. You can also find me on the other show, Cajun greatness, where we just went and saw Renfield and nice. did our live review. Uh, you can find the show, uh, it's the, the instruction booklet on Facebook, uh, as just the instruction booklet. We're also on Twitter at instruction underscore underscore BK. But if that's too much for you to remember, we have a link tree that's a link tr.ee slash instruction booklet. And that has everything uh, that we just mentioned, as well as I will update it as it comes out a little plug in that shows and you can just listen to the episode there. Uh, you can also, we like to big shout out to the, the network, the AYCH that, you know, lets us do this show uh, and bring you interesting facts about computer game things. Uh, and you can check that out on the AYCH Extra. You can find it on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. They have a Twitter at, at AYCH Podcast and AYCH Extra. Um, so, yeah, and this episode. Uh, it comes out, we're going to be once a month still. And so, yeah, other than that, it was fun. Uh, Michael, thanks for uh, helping me get through this journey of the early history. <laughs> Absolutely. This was this was the topic that I was dreading the most because I know much more about you know, the 60s onwards. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to have had the opportunity to look into this because I'm, I'm somewhat guilty of, of kind of the historical oversight that I've you know, criticized others for in this episode. So, yep. Well, awesome. Well, uh, thanks for listening. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Tune in next month for our street fighter episode and yeah, we'll talk to you guys next time. Yep. See you guys. See ya.